Please, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, and let's pray, <clears throat> and we'll turn our attention to the passage. Father, I pray first of all that we would give good hearing to and good attentiveness to your will for your people in this subject matter. And then I pray that you would give to us powerful grace to live out your will for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last time we met a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with the first eight verses in this, in this chapter. If we were trying to divide 1 Corinthians into large sections, I think that we could say that The first four chapters deal with unity in the church, and chapters 5, 6, and 7 deal with purity in the church. Paul has tackled the subject matter of incest and the church's response to that. He has turned his attention to disagreements over money between believers in the assembly, and how we should think about that. And here, and we will devote the bulk of our attention this evening to verses 12 through 20, he deals with other moral issues in the church. Verses 9 through 11, I think, could easily be attached to either verses 1 through 8, or verses 12 through 20. They are dealing with the same kind of righteous and unrighteous conduct. And Paul follows what is for him in 1 Corinthians a fairly common formula by posing to the Corinthians a question about their knowledge. Since again, Paul is dealing with them as dealing with a group of people who are very much convinced of how much they do know. And so he poses them then this question. Verse number nine, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do we know this? And I mean more than intellectually, Paul is, right? We know that there is a righteousness that is positional, that has been given to us by Christ, And we know that there's a righteousness that is practical the way we live. Paul here is alluding, I think, to the fact that it should be the goal of a Christian that his practice lives up to his position. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not think anything other than this. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. And then if we were to ask, well, what constitutes unrighteousness? Then God gives to us a partial. I do not think that it should be thought of in any way as a comprehensive, but a partial list 
of the kinds of things that he is talking about. Neither fornicators. Well, now that would take us back to 1 Corinthians 5, and that will take us forward into 1 Corinthians 6. Nor idolaters, which he has not touched upon, but he will tell the Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. And you can make the argument that covetousness is a part of what's going on in verses 1 through 8. Nor adulterers, another thing that will be discussed in the verses to follow. Nor effeminate, an interesting word that refers to being soft. The effeminate. The the softening of men is what he is talking about there. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Those are homosexuals. Abusers of them. They abuse themselves sexually with human, human beings. Same sex relationships. Nor thieves. I'm sorry, I, I misread covetousness. I'm getting to it now. I misread the verse. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, those are people who are out of line with their words, nor extortioners, those who try to corrupt others for their gain, shall inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says, you guys should know this, and you should not be deceived about this. And here's a list of things that will keep people out of the kingdom. And then he makes the point in verse number 11, such were some of you. So those kinds of people made up the congregation of the church at Corinth. And so one of the things that we take away from these verses as an encouragement is that God is able and willing to save such people. Um, it's, it's pretty easy for us who have been washed and have been saved and for many of us have lived in Christianity for many, many years to hold those kinds of people as beyond hope or in disdain or hopeless cases. But that was the world into which Paul came in Corinth and those were the kind of people that got saved. It was not everybody, but it was some of them. Such were some of you. And now, however, they are different. You are washed, cleansed from your dirtiness, sanctified, set apart, set aside for God, no longer set aside for sin. Ye are justified, declared righteous. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom, but you have been declared righteous by Christ? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with his authority, by his work, and by the Spirit of our God. So those verses, I mean, they just, they're pretty straightforward, and we, you know, we could expand through some of the words, but there's, that's just pretty much, again, I think that it connects to what he's been saying, verses 5, chapter 5 and 6 to this point, kind of this pivot, right? We've talked about the unrighteousness of incest and the unrighteousness of pursuing a civil lawsuit uh, outside of the church family, 
And do you not know this? And then Paul turns to something that is a problem in every culture. I mean, the reality, folks, is that human beings, and probably men more than women, just do not behave themselves very well morally. It is... Right? This is not an excuse or a defense, but it is not in the nature of an unbeliever to be moral like this, like God would expect. And so it is a never-ending struggle and warfare. And so with that, we will turn our attention then primarily, as I mentioned, to verses 12 through 20 this evening. Verses 12 through 14 kind of hang together and verses 15 through 20 hang together. And the thing that holds them together is that Paul is talking about the moral conduct of our human bodies. And we will come back to this when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But broadly speaking, generally speaking, Godly people have tended to fall to one of two extremes when it comes to our bodies. There's one segment of people who want to completely deny virtually any physical pleasure or dimension of life apart from eating the bare necessities. And we talk about those people a lot when we deal with world history And we talk about the Middle Ages and the monastic movement and this idea of just going off and getting away from everybody, from all outside influences, and living a very austere life, denying the flesh everything. That's one extreme. And there are people who tend to just gravitate to that, that, right, if you like it, it must be bad. And then the other extreme are people who argue that, well, it's just the body. And since the body is going to die and decay, you can't really do anything wrong in the body. I mean, it's just a body. And and you can't, so it doesn't matter what you do. And depending upon the book and depending upon the subject matter and depending upon the verses, you will find the Bible taking both of those extremes on and rebutting them. Because it is not God's position that we should deny ourselves everything that we find enjoyable in the body, but neither is it God's position that what we do in the body doesn't matter because it's just a body. It's It's just animated dirt. So what's the difference? And it is primarily that mentality that Paul is tackling here. This this idea that what we do in the body doesn't really matter. One of the things that we need to tackle, and you guys may have a little more familiarity with this passage because we dealt with it not very long ago in in our adult Sunday school class back in the when we divided up men and women, but we're just going to kind of work through the same 
ideas again. They're the same words, and there's nothing been new or revised since we met the last time. One of the things that we do need to talk about in this passage, and I'm going to use the word that you would find if you went looking for it on the internet or in the commentaries, and that is Paul's use of slogans. One of the things that is essential to understanding the text, and if you have a King James Bible, it does not really separate those slogans out. I am not familiar enough with how other versions use their punctuation and grammar, but there are a variety of places in this passage in particular where what seems to be very obvious is that Paul has taken a quote either from the Corinthians themselves or from Corinthian culture, and then tackled that and addressed it theologically. I don't know that I would use the word slogan. I would think of the word perhaps cliche. Um, Although they're not animated, perhaps those of you that are younger might think of them along the lines of memes. But they are things that are just kind of passed down and have come into popular culture, the culture at large, as realities or ideals or the way things are. So what Paul is doing here then is quoting man's wisdom and then rebutting man's wisdom with God's wisdom. Uh, Just as if I said to you, follow your heart. God never tells you to follow your heart. Follow your heart would be the slogan. God's God's instruction about our hearts would be the theological correction. And so Paul deals with these slogans in the passage. Let's go back and let's read then verses 12 through 14, which is the first section of material dealing with our human bodies. And, And it's just kind of general principles about the human body. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. So Paul begins to talk to them just about things that are true of all human bodies. Okay, And here's where we have, in verse number 12, our first slogan. All things are lawful unto me. All things are lawful unto me. Now, without bogging down in this, there is no doubt in my mind that if the Apostle Paul were here tonight speaking to us and he was trying to explain to us our relationship to the law of Moses, he would emphatically argue that we are utterly and absolutely free from the law of Moses. That nothing found in the law of Moses is binding upon us. This does not mean that we live as people with true autonomy as spiritual anarchists because there are things that are binding upon us, but but not the law of Moses. 
So Paul is quoting to them something that they have probably quoted to him. Because Paul had no doubt taught them that they were free from the law of Moses. And therefore, everything is lawful for me. I can do anything. You'll notice the way Paul responds to that, which is not by saying, yes, there are. You say all things are lawful for me, but that's not true. What Paul says is, but not everything is expedient. Not everything is appropriate. For instance, since I am free from the law, I am free to eat bacon. And I would argue that. I'm free to eat bacon. But it's not in my best interest to live on bacon. It's not in my best interest to eat a couple of pounds of it a day. It's lawful, but it's not necessarily expedient to do that. And then Paul continues. Verse 12, all things are lawful unto me. We understand that to be the slogan. Right? That's what they're quoting to Paul. When it comes to our behavior, everything is lawful to us. Paul says, but not everything is expedient. And he quotes the slogan again, all things are lawful. And then he corrects their thinking. But don't be brought under the power of him. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by any of these lawful, legitimate things. Verse number 12, I will not be brought under the power. And it is possible, folks, for us to be controlled by things that perhaps are not intrinsically wrong. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there aren't things that are intrinsically wrong. Paul is not saying we live now in this world of abstract morality where every man decides for himself. He's just pointing out that there are things that govern our conduct. Right? We're not under the the law of Moses, folks, regulated so many of the decisions that God's people made. It regulated everything that they did on the Sabbath day, which, by the way, was literally nothing. And it regulated every facet of their life. Now, we don't live under the law of Moses, so we don't have those kinds of regulations imposed upon us. That doesn't mean that everything that we can do ought to do, and that doesn't mean that everything that we do, we do without a consequence. Some things are by nature addictive and habit-forming. Bad addictions, bad habits, don't be brought under the power of them. In verse number 13, Paul quotes to them yet another slogan. 
meats for the belly and the belly for meats. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. In other words, food is for the body and the body is for food. Why do I need to eat to fuel my body? What does my body do? Processes food. Food for the belly and the belly for food. Now here's what Paul is concerned about at this point in time. Right? If you take that as the governing principle of your life. The body is for certain things and certain things are for the body. Can you bring physical intimacy into that realm? If, if food is for the body and the body is for food, can we, now, can we now make a corollary? Sex is for the body because the body is for sex. And Paul's going to narrow down his focus. He's at this point, verses 12 through 14, talking to them in general terms. Let's nail down the big picture before we get to the particulars. It is true that you're free from the law of Moses. It is also true that not everything you can do is good for you. And it is also true that some things will have the tendency to enslave you. Verses 13 and 14 become then Paul's rebuttal of this second slogan. First slogan in verse number 12 rebutted. All things are lawful. <clears throat> yeah, but they're not to your benefit and they may be to your detriment. Well, food is for the body and the body is for food. Since that is their mutual relationship, how can, how can I be wrong in eating? Since I need to eat and my body is designed to take that food. What can be wrong? Well, notice the way Paul responds to this in verses 13 and 14. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Both it and them. And the idea there is that he will render them inoperable. He will make them unemployed. In Romans 4.14, it is translated with this expression, none effect. There will be no effect. In Romans 7.2, he will use the same, no, it can't be Romans 7.2. I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 7.2 going, that's not Romans 7.2, loosed. Loosed from a wife. So what's going to happen, folks? What is going to happen is that God is going to kill our bodies. And God is going to kill the food. They're going to become inoperative. And, right, and, and we will get to this. Paul will eventually get to this, right? But, but we know that we're going to get new bodies. We're going to get different bodies. And those bodies are going to function in some way differently than the bodies that we presently have. 
So meat for the belly and the belly for meats. This beautiful, harmonious relationship. So my body is for certain things. So how can those certain things be wrong? My body is for them and therefore my body. Well, God's going to destroy them. God's, God's, God's going to come to an ending place with our bodies. And then to that, Paul adds this in the middle of verse number 13. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So your slogan in verse number 13 may be great if all we're doing is talking about bacon. But your slogan falls apart if we're talking about sex. Food is for the body and the body does process food. But the body is not just for sex and sex is not just for the body. The body is for the Lord. It's the Lord's body. Which should certainly govern the way we eat. And the way we think about food. But it should particularly color the way we think about physical relationships. Which, by the way, folks, we all know this, right? I mean, the, the, the unbelieving world never factors anything into physical relationships other than physical thinking. Couldn't possibly have anything to do with the Lord. You can't, you can't simply reduce the physical intimacy between a man and a woman to something like eating a sandwich or eating a salad. Now again, folks, this is, and, and, and we as Bible-believing, even though we're New Testament people, we are heavily oriented to the law. But I would just remind you that with the exception of the Jewish people, God has never regulated or condemned anybody for what they eat with only one exception, and that's blood. Blood was prohibited prior to the law. Blood is prohibited after the law. But God just really doesn't care what people eat. He cares that they eat it with gratitude to him for providing it, but he doesn't care what substance they eat. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But he has condemned everybody for sexual immorality. He's condemned nobody for food. He's condemned everybody for immorality. Sodom and Gomorrah was long before the law. They were not Jewish people. They were just evil people. That's all that they needed to be, evil people. And God brought the force of his judgment down and made them a testament. They, they are an eternal memorial to God's attitude about that sin. To go back to the passage... Right? Meats for the belly, the belly for meats. But God's going to destroy them. 
God's going to render them inoperative. There's coming a day, folks, when we will not eat animals. And there's coming a day when our bodies will not process food the way they do now. They will be rendered inoperative. The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And therefore, verse number 14, God, will, God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. And we know, and Paul will deal with this extensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we know that this is a physical resurrection of the human body. We know that it will be transformed, but this is a... In other words, you can't make the argument that what we do in our body doesn't matter because our bodies are just dirt and they're going to turn back into dust and they're going to rot and that's going to be the end of them when the Bible clearly teaches that that's not what's going to happen at all. That God is going to reconstitute those bodies and resurrect them from the ground. And at this point then in verses 15 and 20, Paul narrows his focus from general principles to one specific issue, and that is the issue of physical immorality. Verse number 15, another question. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Know ye not that your bodies... He's talking here to the Corinthians and therefore to us that our bodies are members of Christ's body. We are, we are limbs. We are parts of his body. We are toes and fingernails, so to speak. I don't think that you can put a lot of weight on that analogy, but we are his limbs, his hands, his eyes. <clears throat> We cannot be separated from each other. I cannot be separated from him, but he cannot be separated from me. Upon the knowledge of verse number 15, Paul asked them then another question. If this is true, or since this is true, how then can I take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? How can I take that which is part of God and make it part of a prostitute? And of course, we know, folks, we know even in our world that prostitution is a very real thing. And in Paul's world, it was legitimized by giving it a religious dimension. And various cultures would actually have temple prostitutes, both male and female. Where people could go and they could put a, a, a spiritual dimension to their immorality. But Christians can't do that because we, we have a body. And our bodies are members of his body.
Paul then asks another question in verse number 16. He just keeps now throwing questions at them. And it's obvious, folks, from the nature of the question that the Corinthians are having a, a tremendous struggle with bringing Christian moral principles to bear upon their congregation. They're celebrating an incestuous relationship. And it's obvious from the passage here that that they are completely out of sync with the way God would think about human morality in this area. So don't you know that the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom, but that's no longer you. So don't live like that. Don't live like that. Your body belongs to the Lord and he's going to raise it up. And how could we, how is it even thinkable that we would take our members and make them part of a harlot? And if we say, well, how does that? Well, Paul gets to that in verse number 16. How how is that happening? It's happening like this. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? And upon what basis is that so? And that is, that is so based upon the word of the Lord. And I would just remind you folks, right, that, that this can all happen within the confines of our minds, according to Jesus in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. We don't have to go out and physically visit a brothel to be guilty of this. What, know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. Because there's the, there's the everlasting enduring standard. When two come together, they are one flesh. So a physical relationship creates a union, even if it does not create a marriage. Paul is not arguing here that it creates a marriage. He's arguing that it creates a union. It is a union that in God's eyes only belongs in a marriage, but it is nevertheless a union. This is part of the reason that it is wrong. Paul there is quoting Genesis 2, 24. Paul continues on with that, right? And the word joined in verse number 16 is a word really that has has kind of the idea of being glued. I mean, you would would use it that way in carpentry, right? There are joiners, jointers. The, The process of putting together pieces of wood and assembling them into one unit, jointers. Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body, for two saith he shall be one flesh. But here's the problem. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. We are members of his body, and we are one spirit. This is something that only believing people can be. This is is a relationship 
that is unique to believers. In other words, what Paul is trying to get at, folks, Paul is trying to get them to understand that you cannot reconcile being one with the Lord in reality and theology and spirit and then go out and practice and be one with a harlot. How would you explain that? How is that defensible? I mean, there's a sense, folks, and, and we really will return to this a little bit later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but right, there are some people who are apparently comfortable with the open lifestyle of we're married but multiple partners, but most people feel very betrayed if somebody steps outside the marriage. Husbands and wives belong to each other. They're connected to each other. They share things over the course of marriage and intimacy that just does not exist in simple, casual, physical relationships. How do we reconcile that? How does that jive? Now we back up and we ask it this way. How, do, how is the Lord supposed to do that? How is the Lord supposed to go? We are in union together in spirit and you are, we are members of the body, but you can do whatever you want with that body when it comes to physical intimacy. And it is at this point then in verse number 18 that Paul gives the first command. He has just simply been reasoning through with these people. He has been interacting with them, talking to them in such a way, posing questions to get them to have to think through the answers. Now here is an instruction. Flee fornication. Flee fornication. This is what you need to do. Now, after that, if you're looking at a King James Bible, after that, there is some debate about whether or not we have another slogan. And I tend to think that we do, but not everybody agrees with that. Most most people who are thinking through the idea of slogans have no problem with meats for the belly and the belly for meats as a slogan. All things are lawful as a slogan. There's not equal agreement on what comes next, but I think that it is a slogan. And I think it reflects the prevailing mentality of many people in Corinth. The verse number 18, every sin that a man doeth is without the body. See, there it is. It's just a body. It's outside. It's just, it's just outside. Right? I'm joined to the Lord spiritually. This is just a mortal body. It's outside. It's not that big of a deal. 
What Paul does, I think, then in verse number 18 is correct that slogan with the rest of the verse. Flee fornication, command. Your logic, every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But you've missed something. You've missed something. He that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And the, the explanation to that statement in verse number 18, folks, is what Paul writes in verse number 19. What does he mean? In what way is it a sin against my own body? Verse number 19. Another don't you know question. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Which is in you. And the idea there of which is who. The temple of the Holy Ghost, who is in you. Who you have of God. And you're not your own. You are not your own. In other words, if if I got my body from the Lord, then it isn't really my body. I can't make the argument that my body doesn't matter because I can't make the argument my body. Right? That's the argument of the pro-choice crowd, right? My body, my choice. And what do we say to them? It's not your body. It's not your body. It's God's body. So when it comes to the matter of sexual purity, it's the same argument. It's not my body. It's the Lord's body. And by the way, folks, when Paul gets into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and there is absolutely no escaping the import of what he says here in the passage, right? He will, he will turn around and then say to the husband, your body's not, your, not only is your body, I think we, if we could put the whole passage together, Paul would say to the husbands, not only is your body not your body because it belongs to God, it's not your body because it belongs to your wife. And then he will say to the wives, it's not your body because it belongs to the Lord, and it's not your body because it belongs to your husband. It's not your body. It's not your body. So when, we're, when we are sinning morally, and we are defending it as, it's not a big deal, it doesn't really matter, it's a body, everybody does it, who's getting hurt? Paul's answering those questions for us. Well, maybe not like the answers, but Paul's answering the questions. We're the Lord's body. We belong to him. It's a sin against him. Therefore, it's a sin against my own body because that body was given to me by God and it's not mine. And so therefore, verse number 20, you are bought with a price. He paid for that body. And therefore glorify in your body and in your spirit. Or glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Which are God's. So our bodies do matter because they're going to be raised. And our bodies do matter because they're in union with Christ. And our bodies do matter because they belong to him. And so we do 
even that to his glory. Okay, I'm going to stop there. If you want to take your prayer bulletin.